Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are discussing Thomas Hardy's very long novel, <laughs> Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Uh, very long, but very good and very interesting. And we are going to discuss uh, phase the fifth today. And then, um, as you might remember from last week, we're going to be off next week. And then the following week after that, we're going to discuss the end of the book. So phases six and seven, and then um, we'll do the Q&A episode after that. So we'll have three more test episodes. And then after that, we're going to do a couple episodes just as a, a reminder of, of a month in the country, which is quite a bit shorter. So, you know, just kind of a uh, some ver- some variety of length. Uh, phase the fifth, uh, for those who are wondering, if you don't have an edition that marks that clearly, is through chapter 44. Somebody told me that they had trouble figuring out the phase things because some of the editions didn't mark it as distinctively as your edition does, uh, Karen. So this I is... Didn't, yeah, I didn't know there were editions that didn't do that. I don't know if it was that they didn't do it at all or if they just don't um, mark it your edition is just very clear, you know, and it says even in the, the page headers, each page, it tells you what, what phase you're in. Whereas not a lot of fiction, you know, it just has the page numbers on the page. So you just kind of, right. Oh, right, when you're trying right. to figure out where you are, it can be a little bit harder. Well, this is a, um, this is quite the section. <laughs> I want to start here because Heidi, you texted me something uh, a couple of days ago. I feel like often this show begins with one of us having texted each other something David's and being like, we need bus. to figure out, we need to get to the bottom of this. But I, I bring this up because I suspect that a lot of people um, feel the same way or are working through some feelings about the men in this book. <laughs> Heidi, you, I hope they are. Heidi, I hope people are working their way through feelings about the men in this book. <laughs> I'm trying All to right, see if I can ahead. find exactly what you said. But it was something to the, oh, you said, I wish that there were English words to describe the depth of my loathing for Angel Claire, <laughs> which is interesting given what we saw through this point in the book from Alec Durbeville. So I'm curious, at, through phase the fifth, do you have a stronger response to Angel's actions and posture and decisions towards Tess than you do? Alex, if so, defend yourself. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's a really fair question. And so I'm going to answer it. Not, I want to be really clear that I'm going to answer the question from my own personal response, not Mm -hmm. how I think everybody should respond. And I think that's really important disclaimer because they're both very despicable toward tests. And I'm also going to answer and another reason I need that disclaimer is because a very wise literary guide of mine um, once and a couple times has said over the course of this podcast series, just wait, just hang in there. There's going to be, you know, have have a posture of humility. I can't remember how you phrased it, Karen, but something along the lines of that, that Hardy doesn't let them become just caricatures mm. of wickedness and goodness, right? There's, there is nuance in this book. Um, but my personal response to Angel is really strong here. Uh, and I think it's, even though I find Alex's actions completely despicable, of course I do. 
mm-hmm. but there's something about Angel, and I think it's his Alec deeply traumatized and violated Tess. Whether it was seduction or rape, it doesn't matter. She said no, he forced her, and it set the course of her life. It was a terribly wicked thing to do. Um, but what Angel's doing here is to shame and reject her. And that hits me really hard. Like personally, I just want to, I've said this before about ants when we just, I just like to punch literary characters, I guess. I really do just want like, oh, ants, so, get ants so from, mad at him. From yes, the, the that's Faulkner exactly book. what I said about ants. And as I lay down, then I just wanted to crawl into the book and punch him in the throat. I feel the same way about Angel. Um, and it is because of that, secondary trauma thing that we talked about and how terribly painful it is for somebody to say what they've been through and then be rejected for it. Mm. And that happened with her mother and now it is happening with her own husband. And I just, just like hate him for it so much. That's my you know, scholarly response. Just kidding. There's my personal as response. As someone who's read this book a lot, and you've you've taught it a lot, and you've um, I'm sure negotiated a, a wide variety of responses in a classroom and among people you've discussed this book with. What is your posture towards these two men um, and their relationship to her? Because it does seem like, in some ways, Hardy is raising the question of I don't know if he's compare. He's certainly comparing the two of them. I don't know if he's trying to get us to say which one of them is worse or the other, but it's, you almost can't not do that. If that makes sense, like the dialectic just kind of works on you. Right. So as you read it and think about it, so I'm kind of, I'm curious in how has your response changed over the years of interacting with other people uh, and how they feel about these characters. Um, And I'm curious if that's different than the way you think you might have responded to it when the first time you read Well, I think most people do um, feel, I mean, there there are a number, there may not be one English word that covers it all, but there are a few that come to mind. (laughs) Um, And one of them, just one of them with Angel that I think is, is, is key is betrayal, right? I mean, not just betrayal Mm -hmm. of Tess, obviously, but betrayal of us as readers, because he is presented to us as an angel, right? As someone who holds to these ideas, these progressive ideas and is, you know, liberated and, um, and, uh, you know, and a dream uh, man and all of these things. And so, so Hardy sets us up to feel this sense of betrayal. Mm. This is where the types come in. It is complicated. And we'll talk, you know, we have been talking about the complications, but in some ways Hardy has, you know, I mean, Alec is presented as a villain. So we are supposed to, you know, a villain's going to villain, right? I mean, yeah, you expect it. Right. Right. And so, so, People in real life are not types like that. Right. But on the other hand, <laughs> you know, there are people in the world, you know, right now who who act according to sort of roles, especially, you know, who who have adopted a role. And 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 whether it's of, you know, just, you know, just to use a common example in the world today is someone who's a grifter on social media. Right. I mean, yeah. that they become that kind of a role. And so they do 
you know, a lot of times you wonder, why did they say that? Why did they do that? Well, they did that because that's the role that they've chosen for themselves. They've become that. And so Mm -hmm. there is a way in which I think we're supposed to um, know how to read types. Again, I'm not arguing to reduce human beings to types, but, but we are supposed to understand them according to kind of the roles they put themselves in. And Hardy's, Hardy's, teaching us how to do that. He's teaching us other things too. So, um, so I think we are supposed to be very heartbroken and very betrayed and very disappointed and very sad and very angry at Angel's response to Tess. Mm. And I am. (laughs) And, and most of, you know, my, you know, in in Twitter chatter over the years, I've seen the same thing that it's, it's angel that, that people really get upset about. And with my students, um, they are so, so betrayed and disappointed in him. Mm. I'm, I'm curious, Karen. And I mean, and you too, David, as our, how much of our intense response to him is, uh, would have been shared by the people of his own generation. I'm very curious about that. Even the way his mother talks to him in this section about his wife, is she pure and spotless? Like she kind of senses that that's the thing that would have created this response in her son and she pushes on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I, I, I found myself wondering, um, if, if there would have been kind of a more nuanced or like my response is so strong, like this poor girl, this is nothing to do. This is her. This is not her fault. Right. right. Um, and you have this opportunity. What I want to say to him is as, especially as an older woman, right. It's you have this opportunity to be so healing to this girl. Right. Um, and, and, and to rescue her, and and to speak life into her for and she's in this terrible brokenness um and and you you're not taking it like that that's how i feel about him but his mom is like is she pure and spotless is she a virgin basically is what she's asking and so that i don't know like what do you think that what especially you Karen knowing so much about more about this time period would the reader's response have been as strong as ours or would there have been a little bit in the readers that's like, Oh, fair enough. No, I mean, that's a good question. And and the opinion uh, of this novel by Hardy's contemporaries was so divided because literary critics who, you know, are judging it more on its literary merits. And I mean, they saw it as too melodramatic, especially in its earlier versions. And so, so their problems with it were other than that. Um, and um, I mean, I, I think that I, I do, and I, I'm not recalling any specific responses from readers. I don't, you know, um, mainly what I read is criticism, but I mean, this was Hardy's criticism of his, the people of his culture, the everyday people. And so, you know, I think Angel's mother's response would have would have been more typical. And if, and if we find that hard to believe today, I mean, I don't know about you, but I read the Southern Baptist Convention Sexual Abuse Task Force report. Um, And so we can certainly say blaming the victim is alive and well. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you very much, Mrs. uh, Mrs. Claire. (laughs) Do you you think that the book itself is trying to complicate our feelings um, or trying to complicate how we respond to his reasoning? 
because we do get inside his head at times and the shit and the 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 shifting points of view from this sort of omniscient narrator to being inside the characters heads um is really interesting in the sense that it's causes us to for each of the characters except alex so far um causes us to try i don't know if it causes us to try to understand them but it does it it does put us in the position to hear what he is uh emotionally i don't know what's i don't know what the phrase is just thinking about what he is he doesn't just immediately leave and he does seem to have this sense of guilt but like this there's also this sense of guilt at leaving but also this sense of hypocrisy and you know this sort of distorted sense of moralism and all these things that are going on and i can't figure out if hardy wants us to sometimes get to the edge of being like okay i hear what you're saying like that's one of the things i was looking for when i was reading not that we sympathize with him because tess is clearly our you know our light here but how do you what do you think about that karen i'll start with you there yeah, uh, I mean, I I think that what Hardy does, especially with Angel, is um, I mean, he's doing a number of things that that he's asking us to do. And that is, I, I mean, Angel, obviously, his his hypocrisy is exposed to us, but also to himself. And right. I think something yeah. you just said, you know, you really that you brought that out that that he he has this guilt and he has this responsibility and love for Tess and all those things and he doesn't know what to do but i think his biggest burden is that he's learned something about himself hmm. that he didn't know before um because he just you know he thought that he was progressive and not tied to traditional um morals and and religious ideas and now he's being confronted with the fact that he is more traditional than he thought so in that sense yeah. i think hardy is ask he, i mean hardy is hmm. Hardy wants true liberalism or progressivism or whatever, rejection of Christianity. And so in Angel, he presents a character who thinks he is that. And Hardy's going, oh, not, not so fast, buddy. Um, yeah. Because he sees the influence of traditional religion and Christianity as, as having such a much stronger hold than even the progressives of his day would would have and i think i lost track of the question but i think that that's what hard that's part of how hardy wants us to respond to angel yeah it's like he didn't expect to have the visceral response to her confession like if he had just thought about it as a hypothetical six months before mm -hmm. or a year before and he probably would have thought of himself differently but then he has this sort of visceral gut reaction to her confession to him and the response that he has isn't what he expected of himself. And so he discovers that these things are deeply embedded in him and he can't, the cowardice of it though, is that he can't actually live by what he says he believes. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, I, you know, I think I mentioned this, uh, maybe it was the last time or two times ago. I don't think Angel Claire was capable of imagining that someone that he perceived as, as Tess, mm. you know, which was is not really who Tess is. I don't right, think he right, could yeah. have. He would have even imagined that she would not be pure and spotless, as his mother says. And he didn't hmm. even know he wasn't capable of imagining that. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Right, that's true. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I also, I mean, Hardy goes out of his way in this section 
to show us how hypocritical Angel is. Uh, the, the scene with Izzy, uh, when he asks her to go with him um, and be his lover and then rejects her in that moment again and re-traumatizes this poor girl. Um, and, and so we have this, his sexual hypocrisy and his, um, his power over these, his exploitative power over this young woman um, so that we know again how much he's hurt somebody who loves him. Um, and, so, and yeah, go ahead, David. Okay, so one thing I was trying to figure out is, is Angel Claire, is he a bad guy? Or is he someone who doesn't know himself and can't control him, his, his the, the border between duty and desire, right? Can't control his passions. Whereas, you know, Alec is, you, you mentioned that none of these people are black and white, Karen. You've said that a bunch. But what is the, in this section, does the book want us to come away from it? Do you think saying, well, this guy is, I mean, he's, this is a bad guy. Like we were duped, Tess was duped, and he's actually, there's not that much of a difference between him and Alec. Or is it just that he, he, he just can't control his passions, which doesn't make you not a bad guy, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a good question because Alec is, as, as Karen, as you said earlier today, he's just a straightforward villain, right? He's a seductor. He's, he's, he's taken advantage. He's raped this girl, ruined her life. So he is, as, as I said last time, he's a man of the belly, a man of his appetites, and he doesn't care what kind of destruction that he does along the way. And now he's back in the story and we don't know how that's going to go yet. Um, but in, in, in what we have seen of him, right. he's a straightforward Victorian, we'll villain, you know, like him. snidely whiplash, tying the girl, to the railroad tracks kind of villain. Right. Um, and a type as Karen said, uh, and a type that we know exactly what to do with that. We know exactly what category to put him in exactly how to feel about him. Um, with angel though, you're exactly right. I think David, he has an, an, a whole lot more depth. He's actually a really great character on a literary level because he's complex. He has the capacity to be a really good man. And yet he's not. Uh, and, and like you said, he doesn't know himself and, and he's, but he's a very prideful person. He prides himself on his moral superiority and it's being, uh, those legs are, have been knocked out from under him and he even knows that. And yet he still does not rise to, above it. Mm -hmm. He does not humble himself. He is not truly repentant. He might feel some self-loathing for what he's doing, but that's not the same thing as repentance. And that's what we're looking for. But because he has a greater capacity, um, it makes me think of something in Harry Potter when, um, when Dumbledore says to Harry, being rather more intelligent than others, my mistakes are correspondingly huger, <laughs> which is a kind of funnier, more lighthearted way of saying exactly what we see in Angel. He has a great capacity. And instead of using it to be a force of healing and goodness in the world, which is what he wants, um, he uses it to, and is now wreaking havoc wherever he goes on vulnerable people. Which in a way makes him 
more it tragic makes our of a response. Yes, not in and the it sense that tragedies are. Response more. It makes our response harsher in the sense of with Alec, we know exactly what to do with him. With Angel, we're not so sure because we're rooting for him and he's letting us down. As 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 Karen said, we as the readers feel the same betrayal that Tess feels yeah. from him because we wanted him to be good and we wanted him to be a rescuer. We wanted him to be a, the savior. And instead, you know, we're watching him fall like lightning from heaven, right? Go ahead, Karen. I agree with everything that that Heidi said and just a couple passages I want to look at as mm-hmm. as we you know in this in this beginning and the way he responds to her because it's just so excruciating and yeah and and, and Hardy is asking us to think so much about how he responds so in uh, this is chapter 35 you know after she's told him um the bottom of page or the middle of page 389 um, when she asks, Tess asks him just to forgive her, uh, which is the Christian, you know, that's a Christian idea. And he says, oh, Tess, forgiveness does not apply to the case. You were one person. Now you are another. I mean, what do you even do with that? Because he's coming from a completely different worldview. And he's also, you know, like forgive, you know, it's he doesn't even see a need to forgive her. And yet, and so that won't fix it because the only thing that will fix it is, um, you know, is her being the ideal he thought she would be. And that on the next page on 390, um, and again, in the middle of the page, she's saying, I thought, Angel, that you love me, me, my very self. It is I you do love. Oh, how can it be that you look and speak so? It frightens me. Having begun to love you, I love you forever in all changes and all disgraces because you are yourself. I ask no more than how can you, oh, my own husband, stop loving me? I repeat, the woman I have been loving is not you, but who? Another woman in your shape. I mean, this is just a... a, a gut punch because he's basically acknowledging that he just loved the idea of her, uh, which is not who she is. And that's not something that can be fixed. Forgiveness doesn't have anything to do with that. And so in some way, you know, he is taking his worldview, um, you know, to its logical place. Um, And this is what I love about Hardy because Hardy, you know, he had, he's, you know, rejected, Christianity for the most part. Um, and yet he's not, you know, he's showing the limits of this worldview too. And that's pretty amazing. The blocking at the beginning of that scene. So the blocking, you know, to use the movie or stage thing is really interesting because um, it's, he's turns away from her and it says he, he turned away and bent over a chair. Tess followed him to the middle of the room where he was and stood there staring at him with eyes that did not weep. Presently, she slid down upon her knees beside his foot. And from this position, she crouched in a heap. And then they talk about forgiveness. So she's like on her knees, almost like she's trying to like, it's like an inversion of like cleaning, washing his feet or something like that. Um, She's begging for forgiveness. She's begging for reconciliation. And in this moment, he reveals like his true self to her, so to speak. Um, And to us. And the way that the way that Hardy just like puts her on her knees in a heap, I mean, like, like, like laundry, something to just kind of be tossed out is, you know, there's so much drama and tragedy in that image. 
and and that reminds me i don't remember where it is whether it's in the beginning of this part but there there's you know when they had sat down to tell each other their stories they had poured wine in the goblets or something and so somewhere here it says you know that they're not touched they're, maybe it's yeah. later and and that's you yeah, know that's they she comes back downstairs i think or okay and so that's like so they're so they have not you know that's an image of communion or the or you know communion that didn't take place um it's so so powerful so we obviously sympathize with tess we recognize like as readers we can recognize just how much she has going against her but did you as you're reading heidi i'll ask you this first when, when you're reading it and actually karen this would be i'd be interested to know what your students think of this too I've, this is my first time reading it, right? So when she is constantly trying to figure out what to do, it, sometimes it feels like she keeps doing the wrong thing. You were kind of tell, begging her, just do do the thing that's actually going to help you here. Like, so how do you respond to the way she keeps sort of mm. um, uh, restricting? I don't, I don't know what the word is. She doesn't, she doesn't ask for help. She kind of like views herself. In, uh, it, it's almost like. Sometimes it feels like it's pride. She doesn't want us to ask for help. Sometimes it's the opposite of pride. She doesn't think she's worth it. Um, and it could, this, in the same paragraph, it could, feels like it could be swapping between those two things. So do you, when you're reading and, you're, and, you're, and she's going off to work on a different farm or she's walking through the woods at night and, and, or, or um, she goes to his, his town and sees his brothers there and they take her boots and all that, how are you responding to the choices that she's making because in a way dramatically they're great choices for the book um you can understand why she's making some of the choices she's making and yet every single one of them seems to be making things worse for herself so right. how do you respond to tess's right. response to everything that's just happened to her my my response is like tender compassion i want to help her and but there's there's moments that Hardy, because he's an omniscient narrator, and he does at times tell us what to think and how to respond. And he says, um, you know, when she starts, for example, right after this scene of recrimination, when he casts her off, uh, and she he goes outside for a walk, and it says that she follows him and starts talking foolishly like a peasant girl right repeating to him the things that her mother said that made light of 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 her past right my mother said that that this happens all the time and that it's not that big of a deal and you know she's she's just grasping at straws um and she's responding it, it's very true psychologically. Like she's just, she's just trying to get him to respond. Like it, and, and, um, and, and to have some compassion, some pity on her, have mercy. She says, she uses that very religious, that, that very religious language, begging him for mercy. Um, and there's, there's times in this section, as you said, that she makes very naive mistakes, some out of trauma, some out of pride, um, some out of self-protection. Um, and, but the way that Hardy portrays it is very much as though those mistakes are because she is alone 
and she has nobody to help her or guide her. Um, and they're all strategic mistakes, not moral mistakes. And that's the difference between whatever kind of blunder she makes. To me, it feels very much like the image I have in my head is like a moth to a, to a flame, right? Just like the moth, just like trying to find the light, like doing anything and just bumping into everything and clumsily try, just trying to get to the light and to the warmth. And, and that raises as a reader that the response that raises in me is to want to defend her, to protect her, to shelter her, to be for her what nobody is being in the novel. Um, and uh, whereas that's contrasted with, with Angel's mistakes, which are entirely moral and hypocritical and therefore arouse as the reader, my, my judgment and recrimination against him. And I want to like recruit him to do for her what he should be doing that I, as the reader want to do. Hmm. It's, it's really beautifully written. And in, in a sense, in telling us that she's making these strategic mistakes, Hardy is, um, in a backhanded kind of roundabout way, um, recruiting our sympathy because my response as the reader is that's not that big of a deal. That's not a big mistake. Who cares that she does this? She only does this because there's nobody there to protect her. Right. And so in a sense, him telling me that shelters her even more from, from the judge, from my judgment as a reader, which I think he does on purpose and is pretty smart thing to do. Yeah. I just want to pick up on that by looking at a couple passages and I probably talk about these in the questions, but these are, these are crucial um, passages, I think, in, in what Hardy's telling us about these characters in this situation, uh, about both of them. Um, so uh, this is on page 408 in the book, which is chapter 36. Um, the bottom paragraph, she broke into, um, so she's, you know, she's told that she's saying, I didn't, I told you I, she was, shouldn't marry him. She tried to warn him those things. She broke into sobs and turned her back to him. It would almost have won round any man, but angel Claire. So that, like Hardy is telling us there's something about angel within the remote depths of his constitution. So gentle and affectionate as he was in general, there lay hidden a hard logical deposit, like a vein of metal in a soft loam, which turned the edge of everything that attempted to traverse it. It had blocked his acceptance of the church. It blocked his acceptance of Tess. I mean, this is amazing on Hardy's part because Hardy is critical of the church. He's rejected the church and he is giving us a character and he's telling, he's criticizing this stubbornness and angel that blocked his acceptance of the church and blocked his acceptance of, of Tess. Um, and then on the next page, um, he says, I, you know, I wish half the women in England were as respectable as you, he said. And remember, respectability is a very important Victorian value, which like hmm. respectability is based on appearance, really. Um, more than anything else, uh, at least in the Victorian culture, that's the criticism. Um, he said in an, an ebullition of bitterness against womankind in general, an interesting little misogyny there. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't a question of respectability, but one of principle. And so there's that hardness there um, that Angel has, which is about as 
you know, fundamentalist as you can get. Um, and then we learn about Tess. This is, um, he spoke such things as these and more of a kindred sort to her being still swayed by the antipathetic wave, which warps direct souls with such persistence when once their vision finds itself mocked by appearances. There was, it is true underneath a black current of sympathy through which a woman of the world might have conquered him. But Tess did not think of this. She took everything as her dessert and hardly opened her mouth, which, you know, I know is a reference to scripture. I love that Hardy tells us that, um, you know, any woman of the world would have been able to win Angel over. Um, but she couldn't because that's just not who she is or how she thinks. Um, Either on 403, it says um, she looked absolutely pure. Nature and her fantastic trickery had set such a zeal of maidenhood upon Tess's countenance that he gazed at her with a stupefied air. Hmm. And so like that, the notion of her purity um, comes up again and nature, you know, right here, she it says nature has set the zeal of maidenhood upon her. And then a couple pages later is this part where it's basically like she could have used, you know, her like, femininity, I guess, to win him over, but she was, pure of heart and didn't wish to do that. She wants him to love her for without having to do all that. And that of course is the inverse of what he thinks she is now. Right. She, he has this conception of what purity is and uh, cleanliness or whatever the phrase was that her, his mother used. And maybe it's not exactly what he thinks it should be. So he already does some really interesting things with the notion of purity going on here and, and what he would have thought that it was before they had their conversation probably might've been just as wrong as it is now, you know? <laughs> well, I think you're bringing up a really good point, David, because in that, uh, that passage that you read um, and later on in that same speech, he says, uh, my position is this. I thought any man would have thought that by giving up all ambition to win a wife with social standing, with fortune, with knowledge of the world, I should secure rustic innocence as surely as I should should secure pink cheeks. So he's, he's seeing this very transactionally, right? Mm. I gave up what the world told me I should have in a wife, a wife of social standing mm. with a, with good breeding and education and knowledge of the world. And all I was asking is that she's a virgin. And therefore, and if also she's not, extremely beautiful. Right. Exactly. Right. I wanted her to be beautiful and I wanted her to be pure. And if she's not, then it was a bad bargain. He wants her to be beautiful saying. and he wants her to be his. Yes. Only. Entirely his. Uh, and and he doesn't see that. He has, and, and as you brought up earlier, he doesn't see that as hypocritical yet. He's no knowledge of himself. He sees that as principled. Yeah. So, yeah. and then later on in Which the Which is passage, an interesting word to use for a transaction. Exactly, exactly. And then later on in that, in that passage that Karen, that you read about the back current of sympathy through which a woman of the world might have conquered him, he's already said, I didn't want a woman of the world. I didn't want a woman who could, who could convince me of anything. I wanted a woman I could convince of everything that I believe in. He wants this moldable 
pure woman, right? And, and again, that idea of what is purity is the question of the book because that's the tagline of the book, right? A pure woman. <laughs> yeah. And so it does kind of just tell us that. Here, yes, exactly. And so what we have in Tess is this purity of love and devotion and, and, so much so that she also doesn't see his hypocrisy. She sees only her own shame. And in that paragraph uh, that, that Karen, you read half of, that's what the paragraph goes on to say. She took everything as his, her desserts and hardly opened her mouth. The firmness of her devotion to him was indeed almost pitiful. And there's a, there's a bit of a judgment there on Hardy's part, but that judgment even makes me respond, right? As, as the reader, it provokes a reaction for me. And then it says quick tempered as she naturally was nothing that he could say made her unseemly. She sought not her own was not provoked, thought no evil of his treatment of her. She might just now have been apostolic charity herself returned to a self-seeking modern world. So we have a description of a pure woman here, which is what he says he wants. And that's the complexity of this, of this section is that in every way, Tess is actually exactly what he wants, but we're left with this question of what is the, I, like, I, I don't even, I, I definitely want him to love her, but if he's going to be such a hypocritical controlling jerk, I kind of just am like grateful that she's free of him. Right. But at the well, same the, time, right? But that's then, the thing is but because she's left, she's yeah. paying. That's the whole point of this section. She's paying. The woman pays. She's paying a debt that isn't hers. It's his. You, well, you almost think, well, she really dodged a bullet. And then you find, then all of a sudden she's wandering around, you know, freezing in, and lonely and enslaving herself. Yeah, and, under a pile of leaves. I mean, like, it, it, I can see how killing people, pheasants, it almost gets a little it almost gets a little gothic, a little melodramatic there, but, but it's not like it's not earned. And it also, and it does help Hardy do what he's trying to do. Like if it, it, it in a different author's hands or without what had led up to it, her wandering on the, she might as well have been wandering on the moor, right? Um, it's very, I mean, I kept thinking about Jane Eyre, right? Like after she leaves, she ends up, Jane ends up wandering and starving yeah. in the cold. And that's the same thing that we see here. Karen, do you think, Thomas Hardy was thinking about Jane Eyre at all? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think by now there were, you know, a number of tropes and archetypes in novels. And so um, um, he, whether he was thinking of those, they become part of sort of the, yeah. the structure and language of, of novel writing. So probably so. Yeah. Even if it's just subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> or I mean, maybe maybe this stuff happened more often in real life than we might think. You know, I mean, there was people were walking and wandering around a lot. So. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. She wasn't. She didn't have like a. You know, she wasn't driving a truck. Right. Right. <laughs> so, can I ask you both a question? Um, as this section goes on, um, Hardy makes I don't know what other word to use besides some judgments or some seems to employ some presuppositions about the nature of women. And I was curious if you two think he gets women right in general. So for example, on 413, it's, uh, I'm not exactly sure where they're on the conversation here, but it says, um, 
Tess had been hoodwinked by her love for Claire into forgetting it might result in vitalizations that would inflict upon others what she had bewailed as misfortune to herself. So she's talking about how he, he had said, well, what about any children we have and what they would have to go through? She therefore could not withstand his argument, but with the self-combating proclivity of the supersensitive, an answer thereto arose in Claire's own mind and he almost feared it. It was based on her exceptional physical nature and she might have used it promisingly. Skipping ahead a sentence. Yet, like the majority of women, she accepted the momentary presentiment as if it were the inevitable, and she may have been right. The intuitive heart of woman knoweth not only its own bitterness, but its husband's, and even if these assumed reproaches were not likely to be addressed to him or to his by strangers, they might have reached his ears from his own fastidious brain. He says things like this a couple times in this section. And so I got, it got me kind of wondering, he makes these, uh, these like claims or like, things he thinks about women. And I was wondering, do you think he gets these things right <laughs> in general? Well, I think that, um, I think that he, I mean, again, again, we don't know for sure, but I would say um, that he is talking about sort of how women are enculturated. Um, so he, he would say that this is how the majority of women are, but I think he would still be, um, giving and kind of an indictment of that the society has made them that way. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 It, it's one of those questions that gets brought up a lot, uh, in the bookstore is like men writing books about yeah. and from the perspective of women. <laughs> and all the time no. I get people who all the time say, well, that was, he really does not seem to understand women or mm -hmm. wow. For a man, he really wrote them from a woman's perspective really well. <laughs> Now, I will say, and I think I brought this up early on and we can't answer it, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up again. Um, you know, when we get to the last couple of discussions of this, when we finish the novel, um, we will have to talk about whether, you know, how fully developed Tess is as a character. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, whether he, she really does transcend a type sufficiently enough or whether Hardy just sort of uses her. So I, th I think that's, a, I don't think that's giving anything away um, to, to say, you know, be thinking about that. Is she just mm -hmm. sort of a placeholder here to, to mm. make the criticisms he wants to make? I think so. Well, and I think Hardy is also, however much any of us wants to be above our own you know, the problems of our own generation, none of us really are. Mm -hmm. And, and we are products of our culture and our generation. And, and, and I, I think I see that here, there is a sense of Victorian mm -hmm. values, mm -hmm. even throughout the novel that criticizes Victorian values. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and his, 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 portrayal of women as essentially defined by the men in their life mm -hmm. and their relationship to the to the men in their life is partly a criticism of victorian values and idealization of femininity and i think partly a product of it mm -hmm. like i don't ever see tess thinking about anything other than being loved by yeah, a man right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and that is that I, and, and he seems to idealize, even our author seems to idealize her for that, mm -hmm. her pure love for Angel, in spite of the fact that Angel is a hypocrite here in this section, is he treats that as a virtue. And he doesn't seem to ask her to see him clearly or truly. He seems to, in a sense, reward her for her purity of devotion to this man, no matter how unworthy he is of it. And that is, 
I think part, I, I, I think that might, to your point, Karen, is that a blind spot on the part of our author? Is that the fact is that because he's a Victorian writer and so he kind of can't Mm -hmm. take those glasses off of seeing women only in relationship to men and their devotion to men and their ability to make a man happy, right? So that is... Um, that that's a worthwhile lens, I think, for us mm-hmm. to, 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 to critique the book through. Are these conversations that you end up having in your classes with the, oh, yes. this, the yes. criticism of, or the readers have this, have this conundrum when they're reading tests? Um, yeah. Yes. And, and I mean, of course I focus a lot of discussions around that as well. So, yeah, sure. because it's, yeah, it's the, a central, it's the theme, the problem he's trying to address, but how well can he address it? Um, I mean, he does address it well, but as Heidi said, he's still a product of his culture. But on the, you know, as I'm reading, I've been thinking a lot about Jane Eyre as a character in comparison to Tess. Mm -hmm. And that's also had me thinking about some of the other great female heroines, you know, Elizabeth Bennett and so forth. And is it, is, is it, we get a, we get to be inside of Elizabeth Bennett's head a lot. We get to be inside of Jane Eyre's head and, Mm There's a remove mm-hmm. here that mm-hmm. I wonder, is that him being limited be, by his, by his time or is the, ver- the remove itself and the, it is the creation of tests as something of a, perhaps something of an archetype. Is that part of his point making, so to speak? Mm. Like, is that a, is that sort of done purposefully? I mean, you don't want to create limited characters on purpose that don't have as much depth you want to build as much depth as possible but there's also like a meta question that could be going on here like in terms of how he thinks about the characters and stories and how he's going to go about doing it um so do you well i mean maybe we should save this to the end (laughs) well i mean i think i i have a short answer i think i mean it's a really good question i mean i just think that hardy is a distant narrator of his world. He creates a whole world and he, he talks so much about, you know, how things might've happened or fate or these, um, you know, he really is very much like an outside observer. He gives us glimpses as some of the passages we've looked at today. Like he tells us, well, this is his character flaw or, Oh, this is her character flaw or this is, you know, she could have done this. He could have, but that's yeah. still like very sort of outside yeah. um, objective looking at this world he's created and, and telling us how it's, functioning yeah including it, the character and that can feel a little cold mm-hmm. as a reader that that remove can mm-hmm. feel like you know it's the opposite of jane Eyre. yeah right right, right. yeah it's really interesting because there's this book that just came out called trust by a guy named Hernan diaz whose first novel was like it's, it was a Pulitzer prize finalist and all that and this this new book it's basically four books in one and one of the big things that all the critics are writing about is the remove that mm. the narrator has in all four. So the first book is, is kind of like a, it's, it's supposed to be a popular novel from the thirties about a tycoon. Then the second part of the book is that tycoon's true memoir, like his own memoir. Then the third part of the book is mm. the memoir of the girl who ghost wrote his memoir. And then the fourth part is the actual journals of the tycoon's wife, who is this key character. And so he has decided he wants to write the memoir because the novelization of his life was so scandalous. So it's 
but all of them have these different degrees of remove. And so the nature of the narration itself of the point of view is kind of doing the emotional work of the story because mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. it's very, it feels very removed and it feels very cold. And then sometimes it feels too close. And it's like, there's no way mm-hmm. that it could possibly be true because of the, like when he's telling his own story. And then sometimes mm-hmm. it's like when his wife, when you're getting his wife's journals, she doesn't, she's writing in a way that she doesn't expect anyone to ever read it. So All the right. nature of mm-hmm. point of view and perspective and remove is like the whole point of the book. And I've been just finished reading it while also reading this. So I've had this idea mm-hmm. of how, what does the distance between the right, the point of view of the narrator and the reader do dramatically? And here it's jumping. This is a book where it seems to be bouncing back and forth mm-hmm. as well in the same book without it even being divided up purposefully in four places. Because when you're in, when you're in, you sometimes you're in angels, but you're almost an angel's head, but you're never really totally in there because he then drops his commentary every now and then. And again, that's so different than, you know, non-judgmental Jane Austen. <laughs> so one thing, you know, when I teach this novel, it's in the context of um, the development of the English novel. So this is the one we always close with. And, I'm, you know, mm. I, I think I can say this without, you know, we don't need to get to the end for me to, to say this. So one of the things that I talk about happening is, you know, the, the novel as an art form kind of reaches its peak. I mean, it's developed since then. There's still great novels, but, it, you know, it, it developed and peaked or at least plateaued in the middle of the Victorian age, um, along with kind of the Victorian age itself peaking, like there was this optimism and progress and hope in in technology and education and all the wonders that humankind could do. And then toward the end of the century, it's like, hmm, wait a minute, there's kind of a dirty underbelly to all these, these things that we've developed. I mean, we still haven't gotten, you know, where it's not World War One yet, where it gets really bleak, but there's right. still enough, you know, enough growing skepticism, despair. Um, this all uh, sounds very familiar. Yeah, we probably talked about this with another novel that that we did. Well, but just so, in terms of like the world we're living in right now. Oh, yeah, yes, exactly. Like, we're, yeah, we're we, as I often say, modernity has peaked. <laughs> but. So I think, you know, when when we're in the midst of the rise of the individual and the ability to change and, and improve and and elevate your station in life, we get a Jane Eyre. You know, we get someone who's in charge of her life and her voice, as tragic as that life starts out. But when we get to Hardy, it's like. Again, we're back to more of the tragic mode, mm. which is about, you know, I mean, in classical tragedy, the emphasis is on plot, not character. Mm. And the same is true with this. We get we it's still a modern, you know, a, a novel of the modern age. So character does count and it's here, but its character has retreated in its importance when mm. we compare it to like Jane Eyre. Just, so it is. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was lag. Yeah. Well, I just had a conversation yesterday in the shop with somebody who was talking about Thomas Hardy. And they said they always think of Thomas Hardy as being someone who was like 1840, 1850. Mm. And he feels he doesn't feel like he's writing at the same time as. I don't know, Edith Wharton or, you know, like being 15 years before F. Scott Fitzgerald or something. Mm. Hmm. I think you were in a time period. Going to say something. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of the remove and what it does to the reader. And I'm not sure if this is Hardy's intent. And I'm, you know, 
I'm kind of like me on author intent anyway. I kind of think if something's in the novel, it's in the novel, whether the author intended it or not. But that is a very debatable issue. Unless you have um, the, uh, the, yeah. the, 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 di- the diary of the novel writing, right? Like, right. right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but whether or not Hardy intended this or not, one of the effects of him not fully inhabiting Tess is that it makes Tess a vessel to uh, for for women of all generations and of all mm. different personalities and of all different experiences to find themselves in her and and I think mm. that that is really important um, is women who read this have a very whether or not he nails femininity. Right. I, I kind of he what he does nail is the vulnerability hmm. of a woman to exploitation of various forms by men. Mm-hmm. And he nails that through mm-hmm. Alec, through Angel uh, and, and through uh, and, and through Tessa's father and and through various and, and through his societal um, analysis and commentary. And, and here we are then in a completely different generation with a completely different, we, in the Victorian it's, era was such a duty-driven, desire-suppressing culture. Mm-hmm. And now we live in a desire-driven, duty-suppressing culture. And yet women that I know that read this novel have a visceral reaction to what happened to Tess mm-hmm. and to her life story. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure, Karen, in leading this these conversations with college girls, I was a college girl when I read this, college girl, like college girl life is fraught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this is a very personal novel, I think, to every woman who reads. I've never met a woman who's read this novel and not felt like Tess. And so I think whether or not that was Hardy's intention, that's what kind of that removal of the narrative voice, him being him zoning out, being even a man who's written this novel, uh, it, it has this quality of relatability that is even though Jane is a much stronger character, it's a bit missing mm. from Jane. Mm. Um, it, but it's here. There's just this haunting vulnerability of femininity uh, through all through all generations that that allows women to find themselves in Tessa's story, and for that to be healing and connecting across generations through literature, which I think is one of the major roles of not, of, of literature in mm. fiction. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about great poems is that through specificity, something universal is reached. And I think that that's kind of, I mean, maybe that's just true of all art, you know, the, the something specific in a painting that's captured that for hundreds of years or a sculpture of, of Greek mythology that was done in 1600, it's still that specificity is reaching something universal and sometimes figuring out putting a name to that or putting your finger on that is hard to know exactly like how is this thing this very specific image from a time that doesn't relate to me very specifically is somehow universally appealing um i guess that's why we have these conversations though right yeah i mean i i think what heidi said is just so insightful um because again to compare jane Eyre. Um, you know, Jane Eyre seems like a real person that was sitting next to us and telling her story, but Tess seems like us, me, 
in a, you know, in a different way, um, mm. because, because, because of what Heidi described. And I think mm. that, I think that, and, and especially, you know, I've talked to so many, um, sexual assault survivors in re teaching this novel and, and, and other contexts, and they really, really resonate with it. But as Heidi said, you don't have to even have to have had that experience to have at least feared it or come close to it, or, you know, be, be concerned or know someone with it. So in that way, it really does speak to young, vulnerable women, women, no matter where they or when they are. Hmm. Should we wrap it up there? Or should we talk about the dream, the sleepwalking? Oh, the sleepwalking. I think we have to say yeah. something. Let's, yeah. let's talk about yeah. that and then wrap up and then we'll save the rest for the last two episodes. Sounds good. So, okay. Uh, the sleepwalking sequence, uh, have at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's All right. Well, I'll, I'll say what I want to say about it. Uh, yeah, it's, great. Um, it's just, again, it's what, what Hardy does because so well, because it's, it's obviously very gothic and very almost unbelievable, but, but it's not until, I mean, if you simply summarized it you said, Oh, you know, he carried, you know, he's sleepwalking and he carried her, called her dead and put her in a coffin. That sounds terrible, but when you're reading it, it really, it, the emotional intensity, um, I think, overcomes the actual details of the plot, which don't sound as believable as the emotional truth that mm. he communicates. In That's interesting. Scene. Which, and there, I guess in those moments, the, the remove is kind of washed away because you are really like stuck inside of not stuck, but you know, you are inside of Tess's fears and like uh, her lack of surety of what to do right now. Do I wake him up? But that will he be angry? Will he be uh, will he be upset? Combined with this, she it's actually maybe kind of nice to be near him and him not looking at her like she's you know poison like a rabid fox. <laughs> um, so that's it is it's it is kind of like a, on the surface, like you said, it seems not silly but overwrought. But then when you get into the moment. It's like a page turner, an emotional page turner. Heidi, what do you think of that, that sequence? Yeah, I think I really, I just, I really love what you said, Karen, about how the emotional truth transcends the kind of hokey gothic, you know, tropes there. Um, because I think that's right. And I think on a literary level, it is, it corresponds to the rape. Like what we have is a man taking her to a lonely place and killing her symbolically. And in both situations, that's what happens. With Alec, it's it's through taking her virginity by force. And um, with Angel, it's him sublimating and burying his love for her. And her, in both cases, having to passively submit once because she has no recourse and no help and but with angel it's even more poignant because she is she has the ability to free herself and she she won't because she loves him she she loves the fact that he is tenderly embracing her even though he's burying her in a coffin like that the the level of complexity of that image and her response to what's happening, her conscious response to his unconscious um, action is there's there's such there's such complexity there that 
I, I fully agree with you, Karen, that that is, it, it transcends how like kind of melodramatic and lame the picture is. Um, if you kind of let yourself go into the, into what's happening here on a literary level and what it symbolizes for Tess and for Angel and how it connects with the loss of her virginity from Alec. Mm. I, you, just the way you described it, you, um, you pointed out some parallels that I hadn't seen before in those, you know, in those two scenes. And even an, another one that you um, mentioned is, you know, is that in both scenes, um, Tess is carried, right? She's yes. carried on the horse, for, you know, uh, and then in Angel's arms. Um, yeah, the parallels in those scenes are powerful. And I don't think I've thought about them, but it, they're so, that's it, so crucial and so important. And it, and the carrying does again, point to how Tess, her whole life is just like faded. And she's just sort of carried along with, um, you know, the dictates of fate, um, you know, on the horse or in Angel's arms. And um, yeah. And, and it takes her into this death-like state. Mm -hmm from which she cannot escape. Right. And, and she, there's a level of passive complicity on her part. Mm -hmm. That's, but, but that adds to the poignancy of it. It doesn't make us judge her and it shouldn't, it ought not. Right. I um, mean, that's her purity, right? She's yes. not a woman of the world. If she were a right. woman of the world, she wouldn't have gotten on that. She horse would advocate with for herself. Right. Because she would have known what was going, going on, but she does not. Right. She's not. Or she'd a woman be like, wake up. Angel, I don't want to go with you right, right. now, you weirdo. Right, right, right. 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 She has this purity, as you're saying, mm -hmm. that is, it's really, it's really beautiful part of her. And you don't want to take that from her. But we also want her to be able to advocate for herself. And these are people who should protect her, right? They should be protecting this purity so that she doesn't have to become a woman of the world. Hmm. She doesn't have to lose that innocence and purity. That's what, that's part, even in, even in Victorian times, however flawed their vision for the idealization of femininity was, and it was flawed. I'll say that straight out. Part of it came from an understanding uh, that part of the role of men is to protect the purity of women so that they can remain innocent and good, right? And don't have to lose that. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to allow a man to shelter a woman so that she doesn't have to have, you know, claws out all the time. That's not what we want for Tess. But, but because she's so exploited, because she's in a sense killed by these two men, whether it's through seduction and rape or whether it's through, you know, sleepwalking, burial, symbolism, <laughs> like um, there's, there is this sense of she can't remain as she is and be protected. And, and that creates this poignancy of tragedy in throughout the rest of the novel. You mentioned tragedy earlier, Karen, too. It, it, this scene reminded me a lot of like, it could have been something from... At first, I was reminded of Poe. It felt like something out of Poe mm -hmm. or something, or Washington Irving. But then I started thinking about Greek mythology. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, it felt like sort of like a play on Orpheus and Eurydice or something, you know, mm -hmm. Zeus. I mean, there's any number of things that popped into my head here that just felt like it had that energy, that mm -hmm. vibe of it. But I think you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I was just going to mention that I, that, uh, 
we have like these big booms of thunder going on right now. So it's just very <laughs> a gothic setting in, in my life right now. Is it a, um, a sunshine storm? No, I think it's a, uh, an actual no, storm. It's, it's, yeah. One that's actually going to cool things down. And, oh, well, um, you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and well, the dog's, the dog's a little nervous because mm. she doesn't like thunder. <laughs> well, are there uh, any, either of you have final thoughts before we, before we wrap up? Yeah, I just want to I want to make sure that uh, we remind people about the very, very end of this uh, phase, the fifth, yep. um, where we do encounter, um, you know, just in the last paragraph, Tess follows this uh, sound of someone preaching. Um, and I think. Yeah. So on page 501, which is a few paragraphs from the end of chapter 44, um, it's Hardy just sets it up so well because he describes the person before we find out who it is. Um, his voice became so distinct in the still clear air that she could soon catch his sentences, though she was on the closed side of the barn. The sermon, as might be expected, was of the extremist antinomian type on justification by faith as expounded in the theology of St. Paul. Um, this fixed idea of the rhapsodist was delivered with animated enthusiasm in a manner entirely declamatory, for he had plainly no skill as a dialectician. He's an evangelical. That's what she's saying. <laughs> and and then, you know, it talk, the next paragraph, she gets this appearance of him. Uh, uh, oh, the story about about his conversion. And then we find out that it was Alec Derberville. Um, and and uh, yeah, that last paragraph at the start, but more startling to test than the doctrine had been the voice which impossible as it seemed was precisely that of Alec Durberville. Her face fixed in painful suspense. She came round to the front of the barn and passed before it. The low winter sun beamed directly upon the great double-doored entrance on this side, out of the doors being opened so that the rays stretched far in over the threshing floor to the preacher and his audience, still snugly sheltered from the northern breeze. Um, this, at the end of the paragraph, the three three o'clock sun shone full upon him and the strange enervating conviction that her seducer confronted her, which had been gaining ground in Tess ever since she had heard his words distinctly, was at last established as a fact indeed. I mean, he mm. paints this picture so well. She recognizes his voice, his voice. She turns the corner and she sees him standing there with the sun shining on his face. And then the rest of the book is on, on, uh, on, I was gonna say unravels, but that's not really, that's, that's a negative term. <laughs> the book doesn't unravel in, in that sense. Um, right. Uh, Heidi, did you want to add anything? No, I have nothing to add. It's just, I will, you know what? I do have one small <laughs> observation, which is that Hardy nails every ending to every phase. Like it, oh, yeah. every Great one cliffhangers. of them is mm. just perfect. Mm. Perfect cliffhangers. Yeah. Cause you just, you just gotta, you just gotta keep going. So anyway, it's like great. you wanted it to be a, a mini series. Yeah. Hey, actually, Karen, have you ever watched any of the movies or series that are on this? Of this book? Um, I, yeah, I, I've just watched, I'm so conflicted about it. Um, the Roman Polanski adaptation mm. is really good. And I 
hate that it's good because he's a little <laughs> child rapist. Yeah, because he's a creep. Know, yeah. So right? it's a yeah. really moral moral dilemma there. So have, have you yeah. seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino movie? Because mm-hmm. you know Tess is like a a part of that because um, uh, uh, Polanski's wife is um, oh. at the time was um, she was killed by the Mansons. She's the female. Oh. Uh, what is, oh. I don't remember the actress's name. I'm sorry. Okay. But she okay. goes to the bookstore in that movie to buy Tess because apparently, and apparently in real life, Roman Polanski had was was off filming a movie and he bought the book and read it and then sent it to her. So that was like she oh. had that with her. She was pregnant and had that with her when she was killed. And that was in the movie. It's, there's she a goes scene the in it's the been, she okay. goes to it's the bookstore. Yeah. And she, okay. So I've been trying to figure out what that the book has to do with once upon a time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino movie, as we've been reading it. (laughs) But yeah, that kind of, it's like an allusion to his adaptation of it. Right. right. But it is good. I mean, aside from the Roman Polanski, I bet Roman Polanski nails this story. Oh, he definitely see that. He does. (laughs) It's, it's really good. (laughs) Cause there's also, it's a movie, right? Cause I think there was also a BBC series or something. And I don't think I've seen that. I'm sure that sometime in the next five years, there'll be another version. Because they just kind of rotate through all these classics. It's an enduring story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, again, as a reminder, we will be off next week. And then the week after that, we'll discuss the, the, the whole book, phases six and seven. And then we'll do the, the Q&A after that. But, you know, we won't, we won't be giving you a, a regular episode of Close Reads. However, there is another podcast you can listen to that Karen is involved with. Um, wait, what is the name of the podcast again? It's Jane and Jesus. Jane and Jesus. And I assume that's just available wherever people get podcasts, right? Right, right. Um, so go check out, you know, if you haven't checked that out yet, but you're feeling um, a gap in your podcasting life, definitely go check out Karen's uh, Jane and Jesus pod. And that's coming back uh, for a new season fairly soon, right? We are developing it shortly. Okay. So probably okay. in the fall, okay, uh, it'll cool. be on Sense and Sensibility. And so you have plenty of time to get... Um, caught up on season one, which is focused on Pride and Prejudice. Nice. All right, uh, Heidi, do you have anything you want to mention? Anything? No, no, I've got, I've got nothing to plug. Just go listen to Jane and Jesus. All right. Well, for Heidi White and for Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.